Solved Unsolved Mysteries, Episode 3. Hello, good morning, good evening, or should I say konnichiwa, ohayo, konbanwa, because that's right, I moved to Tokyo from rural Indiana. Again. Last time was like uh, trying it out, being a student, making money, voice acting, odd jobs, and not being able to find a full-time job thing. This time I'm working at a good place, and I'm a husband, and I'm trying to fix up our apartment, and I'm trying to get all this internet content creator bullshit finished, and I'm very, very tired, always, always, always. Anyway, that's why it's been six goddamn months, and that and I couldn't figure out how to get uh, Unsolved Mysteries here in Japan, but I realized if I use the USA website, I can just buy the episodes. Pro tip to you expat true crime mystery nerds listening, you can almost always just buy the shit somewhere if you can't stream it. Actually, that seems like a pretty stupid and obvious to say out loud now. Hmm. Also, I apologize if the audio quality isn't so good in this episode. Uh, last time I had like my own little mini studio uh, that used to be a closet, and now I'm in my office and it's not fully like soundproofed yet. And we live right next to a highway, so you can probably hear cars going by. So I'm trying to talk louder. I don't know if that's going to help. Here's what it sounds like. Anyway, I need to stop talking about myself. It's episode three of Solved Unsolved Podcast. Oh, fuck. It's Solved Unsolved Mysteries Podcast. It's the podcast where I blah, blah, watch an episode of the show, Unsolved Mysteries, while drunk, record it, listen to it, then research the stuff, then add to the story, and edit it all together for your listening pleasure. So, there uh, was further good response to episode one, uh, for me anyway, and pretty okay to whatever response from episode two, even though I spent way more time on that one. So, um, uh, three. So, I made episode two more video-oriented, and then it got copyright-striked, struck, uh, fucked by the dicks at FilmRise, because they think it's just an unedited episode of the show that I reposted or something, I don't know. They own the rights to the show, okay, but I, I do officially support them because I do have to buy the episodes. It's just that, like, it was really hard to make, and it took a long time, and it sucks to have a copyright strike when it's, like, very heavily edited and has me talking over it and editing stupid shit into it like garlic bread. So this episode will have less video in an effort to try to keep the strikes off of my shit. I honestly do try to follow the rules with this stuff. Maybe I just use too much footage. I don't know. But now, uh, shit, I already got sidetracked. Three. This time we have stories that involve Louis Carlucci, a New York line cook pretending to be a big shot in order to steal women's money. And that's not nice. We review the Yount and Diane Broadbeck case again, unfortunately. We talk about the Beaver Tempest murder case. That's um, a guy they call Beaver, not an actual Beaver. At least I don't think he is. And finally, hillbillies dig holes in Virginia. Why? Look it for gold. They don't find it. Strap into your computer chair or remain strapped into your car seat or plane seat. You don't have to strap into your sofa or recliner because those don't often have straps. And prepare yourselves for episode three of Unsolved Mystery. <coughs> Why do I do this?
Um, there's an emergency in Tokyo somewhere. <laughs> I have to mention at this point that I'm drinking Asahi Dry Black, which is my favorite Japanese beer, instead of uh, champagne, because that's what I have in the apartment. Shut up out there. God, I have like all this sound deadening foam everywhere and it just doesn't matter. Because there's a guy in this that looks like the guy from, you know, like Halloween 3. What's that guy's name? Um, I was going to say like Scott Atkins. What the fuck is that guy's name? He's always like a sex, sexy dad, but he's not, he's not sexy, but he always plays a sexy character. It's really weird. Part 1. Amnesia. A man enters the home of a three-year-old girl who says her mother was downstairs lying down. The basement door is locked, but beyond it, two women are found. One is dead. But who is the killer, and why did this happen? Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins, goddammit. Tom Atkins is in this. I mean, like, not really, but a guy that looks like him. Rhode Island. February 1982. A family friend notices the three-year-old girl of a friend standing partially outside of their home, distressed. When he investigates the home, he finds the mother and friend left for dead on the floor of the basement laundry room. When the police arrive, one woman, Doreen Picard, aged just 22, was found dead. The mother of the little girl outside, Susan Lefert, Laferte? Lefert? 27, was found clinging to life and was rushed to the hospital. Susan was hanging by a thread for a two-hour-long surgery while her husband waited outside, but although Susan was now in a coma, she would survive. The coma lasted 30 days, and when she awoke, she had no memory of the attack and was physically disabled due to her extreme injuries. Police surmised the attacker had intended to kill both women, and did not expect Susan to survive her injuries. Once she awoke, she was expected to give a full statement to the police, which would hopefully result in the capture of the murderer and her attacker. But Susan had absolutely no memory of the attacker whatsoever, and in her appearance on this show, she had even concealed her identity because she feared reprisal from said attacker. No motive was understood at the time of the murder and the attempted murder, nor was there any inkling of one at the time of the original recording, circa 1987. Susan was a mother with two children and a husband who was active in the community and the local neighborhood watch program. Doreen, the woman who was killed, was a student studying childhood development who coincidentally was packing to move away the very same day of the attack. Susan's memory is a big problem for this case. Other members of her family and friends have had to come back and piece together everything that happened to her around the time of the attack, because the physical and mental trauma of the attack not only erased her memory of that day, but Susan had no memories at all, all the way back to New Year's Eve, almost two months before. Wow, this just really sucks. <laughs> this already sucks. God damn it, this is going to be another one that sucks. Look at this corduroy dream boat. Attack, or her attacker, she developed total amnesia about what happened during the brutal assault in the basement. She'd also sustained injuries that have left her physically disabled. Susan's amnesia set the investigation of the seemingly motivous crime back to square one. Oh, God. That's the worst. 
God damn it, we don't want to eat at Lotteria. Go fuck off. Shut up. Firstly, we do know that Susan had a listing in the paper for some puppies she was selling. Doreen was also planning on moving away, so her apartment was for rent, and it too was listed in the paper. This may have been the opening her attacker used to gain access and trust just before the attack. Susan's sister Carol came forward with a story of what happened that day. On the day of February 19th, Susan and Carol had lunch and are sitting in Susan's common room. The doorbell rings. Susan greets two men at the door and tells her sister that she has to go downstairs for a bit. She comes right back upstairs a little while later and speaks with the men in the doorway as they leave. Carol recognizes one man but not the other one. Susan introduces them. They speak for a few minutes, then the men leave. Carol then goes home approximately 10 minutes later at 1.45 p.m. The attack then happens sometime between 1.45 p.m. when Carol leaves Susan's home and 3.20 p.m. when the women are discovered on the floor of the basement by a man named Doug Heath, a neighbor. Oh, God, he's got a pipe. What are you, William Birkin? That's a Resident Evil joke. Upon review of the crime scene, police officers conclude it was a frenzied attack and very brutal. When interviewed with the assistance of her grandmother, the little girl from the beginning of the story admits it was she who let the man into the house. The little girl identified the man as a tall man with a mustache and a hat. He carried a white handkerchief outside of the home that was red polka dotted, she said, apparently with blood. The murder weapon was found at the scene. It was a pipe which was used to beat both of the women about the body, face, and head. The police concluded it could have been a prospective buyer for the puppies, a renter, a family friend, a relative, or a total stranger. Very helpful. Fast forward a bit. Doreen's family conducts its own on-again, off-again, informal investigation into their daughter's murder. Each time they put work into the investigation, they would receive anonymous phone calls from a man suggesting if they continued said investigation, they should, quote, consider the safety of their family. Or more bluntly, quote, if you pursue this, your garage will burn down. What a dick. Susan. Susan is tortured by the idea that the man could at any moment walk up to her and attack her again, since she has no idea who it was. I don't know what he looked like um, or anything else about him. I have no memory whatsoever of the attack. Oh my god, that would suck. I mean, like, every fucking day. Can you imagine the fucking anxiety of just walking around and just thinking, like, this fucker knows who you are and he's looking at you and you, you, he could literally walk up to you and you have no idea who he is. Doreen's family continues to look for answers and continues to be threatened by an unidentified man on the phone. I get up that... Maybe today something will snap and it'll come back. They all sound like Ace Freely from Kiss. As of the recording of the original broadcast here, no killer had been caught. The only clues came from Susan's three-year-old daughter who had identified the killer as an acquaintance of her mother's with a mustache and who was tall. The girl's story had changed slightly several times over the years, so all the other details had been deemed untrustworthy because of her young age, three years old, and the level of distress she had felt at the time due to the attack. No physical evidence is referenced in the show, but there were clues present. No good leads are mentioned in this broadcast. But, update. 
A man by the name of Raymond Tempest was convicted of the murder of Doreen Picard. He was sentenced to 85 years in prison and has since been released. Yes, it throws a random person into the update and says he was convicted to serve almost 100 years in prison, and then it says he was released with no other context or explanation. This raises way more questions than it answers. Okay, updates and background information to this story as of 2018. Raymond Tempest. The show gives us no details or context about his name except that he served time but was released early. But you have me to fill in that little gap for you. Okay, that sounded gross and sexual. Let's get into that. Ah, oh, shit, that also could be. Okay, so Unsolved does a great deal to really give you a good timeline and explain all the characters that were involved at the time, but a lot happened with this case since the show aired, and it's really important we talk about Raymond Beaver Tempest. Yes, the guy they convicted for the murder and attempted murder of two unarmed women in a laundry room slash basement is called Beaver. The show sort of introduces, but then never really mentions him exactly. It's weird, because it does that to a few other people in the story as well, possibly just to shorten and simplify the story to get to the point in the time frame. This is a television show. Anyway, moving on. I googled around and found the Supreme Court of Rhode Island's case that upheld the guilty verdict, or gave him a new guilty verdict however the hell that works and that has a great more detailed timeline of the events that happened on the day of the murder and it is as follows verbatim so i am reading a court document on february 19 1982 at approximately 3 20 p.m 15 year old lisa ledoux or Le, ledoux ledoux let's say ledoux came home to the triple decker apartment at 409 providence street the apartment where they live in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, which she lived with her mother and stepfather, Douglas Heath. Ledoux testified that, upon arriving home, she walked around the back of the house, where she noticed a, quote, big maroon car parked adjacent to the bulkhead leading into the cellar. When she entered through the back door of the house, she saw three-year-old Nicole Laferte, Susan's daughter, crying, quote, saying her mother was downstairs sick. Ledoux disregarded Nicole's behavior as simply a cry for attention because Ledoux heard, quote, some moving around downstairs. So she went upstairs to wait for Heath to come home. Within a few minutes, she saw Heath pull into the driveway. Shortly thereafter, she heard Heath frantically call for her. Heath testified that he arrived home approximately 10 minutes after Ledoux. When he walked into the back hallway of the first floor of the multifamily home, he also encountered young Nicole who was standing at the cellar door crying. Heath asked Nicole what was wrong, and Nicole replied that her mother was downstairs, quote, lying down. Heath went down to the cellar, unprepared for the gruesome scene he was about to encounter. A body, quote, basically sitting between the washer and dryer, and a second body laying face down in a puddle of blood. Both bodies had been beaten beyond recognition, the bodies would later be identified as those of Picard and Nicole's mother, Susan Lefert. Picard was pronounced dead at the scene at approximately 4.30 p.m. the same day. Lefert miraculously survived the brutal attack, but due to the injuries she sustained, her memory was significantly impaired. Following what even the state described as a chaotic 
disorderly, and disastrous nine-year-long investigation by the Woonsocket Police Department, on June 5, 1991, a grand jury indicted Tempest for Picard's murder. The case went to trial in April of 1992, during which Heath, Ledoux, and a number of other witnesses testified. Of these witnesses, four testified that Tempest had confessed to killing Picard. Two such witnesses were John Guarino and his former girlfriend, Donna Carrier. Tempest and Guarino ran in the same circle of friends, and at one time they lived in the same apartment complex on Winter Street in Woonsocket. Guarino testified that while they were out one night having drinks in late 1982 or early 1983, Tempest confessed to killing Picard. Although Guarino testified at the time he did not take Tempest's confession seriously, he nevertheless went home and told Carrier, the girlfriend, what Tempest had said. Guarino further testified that several weeks later, Tempest, who Guarino said appeared, quote, very, very nervous, came to his apartment and told him he, quote, better keep his mouth shut and not say anything to anybody. Tempest again told Guarino, quote, that he did it, but, quote, they don't have any proof that he did. Carrier testified that she overheard this exchange between Guarino and Tempest. She stated that Tempest said that Picard, quote, came down the stairs at the wrong time, saw him hitting Susan Laferta, and that he couldn't let her get away and had to do her, too. Carrier also testified that Tempest said he was, quote, very upset because Laferte was going to tell his wife something and that he and his wife had just gotten back together. Prior to trial, Carrier had been adamant that, at the time of the murder, the Tempest family lived in the same apartment complex on Winter Street as she and Guarino. Okay, so the motive for the attack is still not exactly clear, but looking into this document, several other articles, and catching up on a few clips of court cases online, it's pretty clear at the time, the Beeve was into drugs and alcohol, and his relationship with his family was at times pretty rocky. The wife referenced in court documents would later become the ex-wife, but maybe that's neither here nor there. But essentially, the prosecutor's claim is that the beef goes to this apartment to get a puppy, leaves, then later comes back, something something Susan and Beef argue about something, something he doesn't want his wife to know about, and he hits her. A lot. He thinks that he kills her, then Doreen catches him, and he doesn't want witnesses so he attacks her next. That's the story that the prosecution went with. It was at the time corroborated by several witnesses. Easy, open, shut. Just kidding, almost every witness changed their story or recanted. The fascinating thing about this story is that both sides accuse each other of corruption, and it really seems like both sides actually were corrupt. There was proof of evidence suppression witness coaching and altering events to fit a timeline established by the police. Tempest's brother, who was a cop, the cop that took his statement, actually, was arrested for collusion early on. You see, Tempest had family and friends in the police department, and he was said to have bragged that he would never be convicted because he had friends in high places. In this case, his father was the high sheriff guy, and his brother was a cop dude to name two. On the other side, the prosecution was accused of witness tampering and messing with the evidence and suppressing details to make the story seem more clean-cut and favor their suspicions on Tempest. 
The maroon car was mentioned several times to be Tempest, although it's dubious if you actually had access to said car at the time. Kinda hard to tell what the fuck happened when all this gets tossed up like a beautiful fresh kale salad! Just look at the freshness. This is why the case went to the Supreme Court in 1995 in the first place. Tempest's story was that he actually did visit Susan Laferte to look at puppies, but he and his friend just left afterwards and never returned. According to him, the pair went straight to a bar, got drunk, hunted around for some cocaine in Tempest's car, spent the day drinking, getting high on coke and weed, and just drove around, and eventually picked up a pizza for the kids. You know, the 1980s. You ever hear that whole thing where witness testimony is unreliable? This may be one of the best examples of that ever. Let's look at the star witness of the original trial, Ronald Vaz. Vaz claimed originally, in the 1992 case, that the beaver came to his farm soon after the murder, nearly 50 times, actually, and bragged about how he was the one that killed the young woman and tried to kill the other, and also bragged that he would never be caught because blah blah blah, I already did that. Okay, that's pretty damning that he would show up and do that so many times, but who does that? Maybe drunk people high on cocaine at a farm in the 1980s. Maybe. I mean, that's why we got so many great fucking Stephen King books, right? And so that's related somehow, I'm sure. The problem with Vaz's story is Vaz. He would later clarify, well, Tempest didn't visit Vaz at his farm around 50 times. It was maybe more like three or four times. Then Vaz realizes Tempest couldn't have come to his farm so soon after the murders to brag about them because he didn't own the farm yet. And unless Vaz is fucking Kyle Reese from the first Terminator movie, he's not a goddamn time traveler. But he couldn't be anyway because we know that the time displacement equipment can't be used to go to the future, only from the future to the past. Except for that one time in Terminator 2 3D, the interactive film experience at Universal Studios Florida, but that attraction isn't considered canon, Vaz, you idiot. Vaz does swear that the confessions did happen, but where, when, and how many times is completely in the air due to, in his own words, him, quote, being a trucker and it being really hard to keep track of dates. That actually may be true, but that makes him an unreliable witness. And it's an easy string to pull in the courtroom when 75% of the thing you said is easily disproven by you. So here we are in 2018, and the show update told you that the beeve was released. Was it because Vaz had a bad memory and they threw out the conviction? Actually, no. It was DNA evidence. Doreen Picard's body was found in the basement, the laundry room of the building she lived in. Clutched in her hand were hairs, hairs that were believed to be her assailant's hairs. Hairs were also found in Susan Laferte's hands. Hairs that after being tested for DNA did not match the thick yet silky and water repellent fur of the beeve. So after he sat in jail for 24 years, I don't know, building little dams in the sink out of toothpicks or whatever the fuck beavers do, he was released on bail in 2015 after his sentence was vacated. In 2016, the state Supreme Court upheld the vacated sentence and granted the beave a new hearing. From the aforementioned court document, Tempest v. State, quote, Nearly a decade later, on April 8, 2004, Tempest filed an application for post-conviction relief pursuant to Rhode Island's Innocence Protection Act, 
GI 1956, weird squiggly S's, 10-9.1-11, and 10-9.1-127, and sought the release of certain physical evidence, including, among other items, hair recovered from both victims of the attack, as well as fingernail clippings from Picard, for forensic testing. Over the next 11 years, many motions and memoranda were filed, various orders were entered, and discovery ensued. Finally, in April of 2015, Tempest filed a second amended application for post-conviction relief, which is the operative application in the present appeal. So, in 2017, the Beeve would have his hearing, and in that hearing, he would finally be convicted of murder for the second time. But wait! Alfred! Alfred! No, I'm not Bruce Wayne looking for that special baby powder that would have to be required to fit in such a snug outfit. No, it's a legal thingy. Alfred. Alfred plea. That's a pretty good one. An Alfred plea is basically a hybrid plea, kind of. Keep in mind, I'm a, a legal layman. Although it's treated as a guilty plea, basically. The Beeve admits there's no surefire way to prove his innocence. And if the case would go to full trial, he and his lawyers believe he would just be given the guilty verdict anyway. But the defendant does not actually admit guilt directly in this plea. He maintains his innocence while at the same time recognizing that he will most probably lose the case against him because the evidence of his guilt. Alfred pleas don't have to be universally accepted. It's up to the judge. The punishment by using the Alfred plea versus a regular not guilty plea and then being found guilty while you've pled not guilty is different. For instance, Alfred pleas can allow a lesser charge, like going from a murder charge to a manslaughter charge, or drastically lowering the amount of time served, or if there's even time served at all. In the Beeves case, he will not serve more time. Leave it to Beaver to get convicted guilty twice and then somehow get out of jail. But dump But that's pretty much the update on my end. I originally wanted to have more details and go into the story and talk about the daughter who was used as a witness at her young age initially. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff about maybe it was, maybe there was an affair going on and maybe uh, it was an ex-boyfriend or a secret current boyfriend that did it and got away scot-free. But the episode kind of already did all the main points that we can actually prove pretty well. So I, I still don't like, I, I don't like stories where people get murdered and then there's no clear, I did it, you know. I think that it would be weird to just cut them out of these shows because I, I, I like to, I like to lean the show more comedy. But if you notice, there was no jokes for 10 minutes. Real talk. Okay, so of course I feel bad for these victims' families and the people honestly trying to put away the guy, in this case the beaver, who they think is guilty. So I'm gonna go... I'm gonna go drink horiyoi momo now. Oh, uh, uh, momo is the Japanese word for peach. It's a... Horiyoi momo is, is a... It's a peach soda and rice liquor drink. It's like 3% alcohol. It's a girly can cocktail drink that I like. Don't make fun of me, go fuck yourself. Peaches taste great. Result. Solved. Kind of. Raymond Beaver Tempest was convicted. Unconvicted, then reconvicted of the crimes. It is still entirely possible that the real killer has not been caught as there has been no confession. But it's doubtful we'll ever know with certainty. Part two, fraud. The heart attacker. 
The actual nickname of this criminal, yes. A mustachioed man wants a wife to spoil in his big-shot lifestyle. Only, is he really a big-shot? Or is he just a bigamist and a dick who convinces women to let him borrow their credit cards? Yeah, he's the second one. The dick one. 1981. New York City, New York. Louis Carlucci arrives on the scene carrying a single bag containing a single decent suit. Nobody knows Louis. He gets a job as a cook at a diner to make ends. September of the same year, Louis meets a woman in a bar. She's a little bit unimpressed with his clothes and looks, but they hit it off immediately. Seven weeks later, they're married. Unknown to her, she would be one of his nine different wives, and he would influence and con her out of every dollar he could get. This guy looks like a fucking, you know, just like a chubby, mustachioed motherfucker with his silly hat. You know what I'm saying? Like Carlucci is a con man. He is rumored to have around 30 children with almost 10 different women and sucked around $1 million from conning them all. He would later be known as the heart attacker, or the one I think is much better, Con Juan. He's more of a, your dad's fat friend who always borrows money and needs a shower, in my opinion, but that's probably too long of a nickname for a good headline. Barbara, as she's known in the show, not her real name, is the only victim of Carlucci who would be interviewed for the show, or ever publicly identified, kind of, on condition her voice be electronically altered and her appearance be concealed. She's still afraid of Carlucci. She's also pissed off. First impression when I first saw him? No style, no class. <laughs> <laughs> Using Barbara's story, Robert Stack is here to explain how this loser makes off with his cash. Tonight, we'll see exactly how Carlucci perpetrated his schemes, which the police call marriage, marriage swindles. First, he approaches a woman and lays on the moves. He's a dork, but he's sweet and seems genuine. Always funny. Always with the compliments. He lies about his upbringing and says he's... He's... In the restaurant business. He's a fucking short order cook in a diner, so I guess that isn't technically lying. Then he goes on about how he can give the woman everything they ever wanted. Really lays it on. Butters them up like a, a good ear of corn. You know, uh, he uh, lies like a, a, a piece of shit human being. In this case, it goes full tilt, and the next big step is getting a quick marriage. It's a whirlwind romance. You and me, baby, we don't need nobody else. Only once they're married, the dick safeties are off on this dickatron dicko mag, and he's full auto dick flinging dick bullets, and he's shooting to kill dicks. The women are not allowed to go out, talk to other men, call friends. They live out of suitcases. They pay for everything with her credit cards. He slaps her. He yanks her hair. He orders for her at a restaurant. What the fuck? The woman always pays for everything. She can't even use the fucking bathroom alone. Before you know it, her credit limit is reached and she has no cash. She's emotionally broken down. She's monitored all the time and is struck or threatened when she does anything he doesn't like. So one day she manages to use the bathroom by herself and inside that bathroom is Carlucci's old style shaving kit. You know, the old style razor blades that are removable. 
She takes the razor out of the shaver and prepares to kill herself. Only he walks in on her. And at that moment, he seems a little changed. He walks in the other room. He packs up his suit and what little things he keeps with him. And out he goes. And he's just gone. Yeah, fuck you and your dark coat and your... Where the fuck is your mustache? Why can't they just stick on a fake mustache? Obviously, Barbara doesn't kill herself here because she's on television now. It's May 13th, 1982. With whatever he took from her credit cards to the limit, plus about $20,000 in savings, or around $50,000 in 2018 money, he's taken Barbara for every cent she had to her name, and she's most likely unable to use credit or take loans now. He took all her assets and pushed her to the brink of suicide, then just left. Like I said, Dickatron. Lewis is spotted all over the country and as far as California, and was wanted for grand larceny, bigamy, and fraud. The police estimate he does a version of what he did to Barbara at least ten times a year, but later that part will make no sense. Just a heads up. This concludes the story from the original broadcast. Oh, he's got no mustache here! Dubious distinction of being captured twice, thanks to viewers' tips. Awesome! Update number one. Because of tips from the audience of Unsolved Mysteries, Carlucci was caught in Nashville, Tennessee, and was extradited to New York. He was then released on a measly $1,000 bail. What happens next? You guessed it better than the fucking justice system at the time. He vanished. Because that's what he does. That's all he does. Oh, wait, that's uh, the Terminator references were from story one. Shit. Update two. Unsolved Mysteries re-airs the story with the previous update that Carlucci had escaped. Unsolved Mysteries fans yet again identify the man and lead police to his arrest the second time in Los Angeles. Newest update. Update to those updates via Amazon. Carlucci was sentenced to four years in prison, then released to supervised custody. That concludes the story from the episode. Further updates and background information from 2018. Firstly, if you search for Carlucci online, you're going to get a lot of depressing threads of people claiming to be his children. Remember by the show's own estimation, he may have around 30 children by 1987. On May 18, 1988, this original story was one of the very first specials. Before the show was produced as a regular weekly show, there were specials. After the original story aired, Carlucci was identified within about one day. That's the goddamn power of TV back then. As I said earlier, he was captured, made bail, disappeared, and captured again thanks to another tip from a second Unsolved Mysteries fan in Los Angeles. This time, he spent four years in jail for his crimes. After he did time, he was released into supervised custody in 1994, about five years after the episode update we just watched here aired in 1989-ish. Usually I like to build a little profile for the criminals who we talk about on the show, whether or not I actually use them in the episode, but for this con man with multiple aliases and a court case from the late 80s, before everything was automatically thrown on the internet in giant fucking databases, info was hard to come by. Plus, like, this podcast is free. You're welcome. 
Louis Carlucci was 42 years old in 1986, 5 feet 11 inches tall and 240 pounds. The official child count, according to an article in the UPI archives, is at 35 children by 1986. Because only one woman ever came forward publicly with stories about Carlucci, the count of women who were defrauded and abused by him is approximated at nine. But some places mentioned earlier have it five times higher than that. So I'm gonna say we don't know that information. How many kids, how many women, the numbers are different in everything that I read. Obviously other complaints were made to the police, but not all of that information was made to the public and or it just wasn't reported in detail at the time, so now it's hard to find. The same article referenced earlier states that by this point, six other women left complaints of losses greater than $50,000. It doesn't say if that's 50 grand each or for the total amount. That might actually have something to do with the weird, crazy changing numbers. And again, reminding us that none of the women mentioned were publicly identified. It is important you remember that part where no one is identified so you understand why all the details in the story are a fucking mess. And also why he only served four years. Okay, so two years later, United Press has another article when he is caught. And here's, this is the first time in Nashville. And here's why the story is so confusing and insane and why I really love some sweet, salty court documents. Now, this article claims Carlucci has 30 children, the other one had 35, and stole over $1 million from all the women altogether. I think these numbers are just some sort of estimations and we'll never really quite get it figured out, unless everyone just decides to identify themselves and spill all the info and then we could put it all together, which is probably not going to happen since this was already 30 years ago and Carlucci is apparently dead by this point. The UPI article goes on about how Lewis liked to pretend he was dying of a mysterious and curable disease to gain affections of women like a cartoon character and pretend to be rich when his money was tied up somewhere else just as the show stated. But the funny part to me is he confessed in the article that he himself was a fan of the show Unsolved Mysteries and watched it. The only reason he didn't see himself on the show that, that led to his capture was he was hosting a birthday party and missed that particular episode. So when he was arrested, he did not resist and actually said that he was relieved to be caught because of all the stress of being on the run from the police. That was May 20th, only two calendar days, less than 48 hours, after that episode aired. So again, he would later escape while on bail and be recaptured after the episode update aired in July of 1989, which is the thing we just saw. Carlucci's story doesn't end there. Actually, just kidding, it kind of does. And now, complaining. Look, okay, I'm not a researcher. I went to college for graphic design. I googled, I looked for crime records, death records. I guess I just kind of suck at this whole investigation thing because I can't find much. Several sources confirm that Carlucci is dead now, but the death date and cause of death are not stated. Actually, I didn't find much useful beyond like page one of Google. I even went to the multiple websites that record court documents and as far as those go, Louis Carlucci doesn't exist, which, now, I'm, I'm sure if I filed a request for information on this case through public channels uh, manually and paid a fee, I'd be able to get all the court documents for the case I wanted and other information I was looking for, but uh, strangely, none of this other information is easily accessible. Like, for instance, 
his exact date of birth, his date of death, etc. All I can gather is that he was born around 1944. Based on his age, both times he was in the newspaper uh, for being arrested. Isn't that a funny goof? Ha ha ha. Back to the show. Where the hell am I? Why do I sound like shit? Unfortunately, Louis Carlucci is a pretty common name, and most websites that have just, like, basic, basic obituary data aren't exactly helpful. The only person I could find through a cursory search that fits his description and approximate birth date and his area of previous residence as of the 90s died in 2006. Is that him? I have no idea. That's all I found. And as for the other wives and children, well, if you Google his name, like I said, people show up on forums claiming to be his children. I have no idea if they were telling the truth. There is no official public record of how many there are, and their names are not usually ever given. The only actual bit of useful information I ever found regarding any of his victims was in a New York Magazine article from January 1984. That's way before the show aired. It's an article about scams in general, but at the end of the article, it introduces us to a woman calling herself Mary Stokowski, who married a man after seven weeks in 1981 in New York City after meeting in a bar who was fleeced out of $20,000 in savings. Hmm. It's Barbara. One thing, I'm not sure if it was mentioned in the show because I only watch this show when I'm drunk, is that uh, this lady, uh, Barbara, had two teenagers at the time of their meeting, which isn't really shown much in the reenactment parts of the show, I think. But as far as her identity, otherwise, Stokowski could also just be another alias for herself as well. It would seem weird that she would agree to be in New Yorker magazine, but not on Unsolved Mysteries. I have no idea. Either way, Carlucci's dead now. So in conclusion, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think I actually somehow know less than before now. Man, this was incoherent. Result. Solved. Louis Carlucci was caught, served time, and later passed away. Maybe. Okay, I'm going to leave the recorder running, but I'm going to cool off for a moment. Because I'm sweating so fucking much. Oh my god, I had to freeze a one liter bottle of water and then leave it in my lap this entire time. It's just now it's starting to get too wet and starting to feel gross. Holy fuck, I'm sweating so goddamn much. Why the fuck is it so fucking hot in Tokyo? I feel like this episode's too long and it's not funny enough. Okay, I think I feel better now. Wanted! Who's wanted? I wish I was more wanted. Part 3 Wanted. A housewife aids the escape of a convicted rapist and murderer, John Yount? Oh, what the fuck? Because they did the thing before, the episode before this was the update to this episode. If you listen to episode two, then you'll understand that this whole part is going to fucking make no sense. Why the hell did they do the episode update before the actual episode? What is happening? I'm sorry. I'm really freaked out. God damn it. So if you listen to the previous episode of Solved Unsolved Mysteries podcast, I had a weird reaction to one story that was just an update to a story that was not mentioned yet, and I commented about how weird that was. And so I spent a lot of time trying to find extra footage and information about the story, of which there was not much on the net. 
I even Googled and searched other sites to find the full original episode of Unsolved Mysteries where that originally aired all of the original footage and reenactments and shit and gave up because I couldn't find it anywhere. And then I watched the next episode on my queue on Amazon and all the shit I was looking for was right there the whole time. Once again, I have to mention that this show, Unsolved Mysteries, was recut and re-aired many, many times. Apparently to the point that they sometimes put updates to story before the story is actually shown in a sequence. So, uh, if you look up the history of the show and look at the story order, maybe on like Wikipedia or something, it's altered from the DVD version. And the Amazon Prime version, the updated version that I'm watching now, has even further updates and edits to make it all the more confusing. So just in case you don't remember or didn't listen to episode two or something, I'll summarize the footage from this story, which I actually have now. 1986, April, Wellsville, Pennsylvania. Diane Broadbeck is a super religious church grouper who everyone in the community knows, and suddenly she disappears. Her car is found, her overnight bag is found inside. Coincidentally, not coincidentally. A prisoner named John Yount went missing at the same time. Reports put her near the scene of the prison escape. Police believe the two plan to escape together and that she is either with Yount now or she was just used and discarded. Diane's mother Nadine goes on television and says with absolute certainty that she knows her daughter and that she would never help a man who was proven to be a murderer and rapist of a young girl escape from prison. Poor Nadine is unfortunately wrong. Chester Broadback, Diane's husband, makes a weird face and states that he's pretty sure his wife would actually help Yount break out and escape with him. He assumes that maybe he somehow threatened her, but even he doesn't really know how or how to make sense of it. He seems bummed out for good reason. The show makes sure to let you know Diane had a normal job and a loving family and just celebrated her wedding anniversary with her husband. Now the show brings you back to 1966. Is that an fucking Impala? What is that? Is that an Impala? You tell me, is that an Impala? April 28th, 1966. He sees Pamela Sue Reimer walking down the road. Pamela is one of his students because he is a teacher at her school. He insists she get inside his probably Chevy Impala and that was the last time anyone ever saw her until her body was found. I'm talking a lot right now because I know that he murders this 18-year-old girl and it really fucking bummed me out in episode two. And if you heard episode two, you know how fucking angry I am at this cocksucker. He's an adult-ass man who kidnapped and fucking sexually assaulted an 18-year-old girl. She was beaten with a wrench and had her throat cut, and she was raped. She was a senior in high school, and he was her teacher. Anyway, Bitch Boy confesses to the murder the next day, and he starts a pen pal program through a church group. He gets switched with a different pen pal, and that new pen pal is Diane. Fucking, ugh, I'm already getting pissed off again. This is going to get super bitchy. She mm. really was a people person. I guess a people person means that uh, you leave your husband and family for a convicted rapist murderer. The two write one another and fall in love or whatever that version of that feeling is when you're a psychopath. He taught in prison school and computer programming, blah, 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 you heard it, 
and I don't care to repeat the details of this shitty murderer life, and he can go fuck himself. She visits him in prison all the time. This time we get to see the prison guard who passed that information on, and he, he confirms those two were kissing and shit, which is really gross, and I hate them, but I love this guy. Yount wants a, a retrial, uh, even though he confessed to the murder and there was physical evidence and hundreds of other reasons why that's fucking stupid. All his shit is denied because fuck him. He kisses lots of asses and pretends to be a good boy, so the prison lets him go cut fucking hay by himself. Why the fuck is any of this happening? He's never seen by the prison staff ever again after that. Except later, when he's on television for being a dipshit. The prison guard we met earlier notices that he referred to as Yount's girlfriend driving in the opposite way from the prison as he is driving to work. Broadbeck's husband gives further comments while still looking fucking utterly dumbstruck by the shit that she pulled. They discuss the phone conversation and charge Broadbeck, blah blah blah. Diane has a strong moral code of ethics and there's no way she did this, blah blah blah. And back to where we started, they find her car and she's missing and we're looking for them. You know how this ends. Mr. Broadbeck looks utterly heartbroken, and it fucking pisses me off. Dan's mother looks utterly heartbroken, and it fucking pisses me off. The fucking thoughtlessness of doing something like this is unbelievable to me, and I have seen this story twice now. No idea that they were romantically involved. Ugh. Maybe because you're a decent person who believes the best in people? Update. Duh. John Yount and Diane Broadbeck have been captured. Fuck yeah, they have. Two morons captured. One moron is a huge piece of shit rapist murderer. Y'all got humped. Yeah. Yeah, Humphreys. Bros, go. Humphreys, go. Yount went back to prison to serve out his life sentence like he deserved. Diane served two years. Yount gets sad and commits suicide in prison instead of paying his debt to society. If you want to know more uh, info, re-listen to the last episode. Fuck these people. I'm sorry to their families for having such shitty people related to them. I'm sorry I seem like such a dick to them, but they're fucking pieces of shit. I, I wish uh, they eat a rook sack of rough dicks, you fucks. Next result. Solved. Those things I said earlier happened like I said. Ooh, need to cool off with something dumb. Oh, here's something dumb. It's been a native here for 50 years, born and raised here. I ain't got no mustache or no chin hair, but son of a bitch, goddamn motherfucking Rubitax. Because this is supposed to be a fun show, and I'm always having to talk about fucking people murdering high school students, and it really bums me out. Oh, uh, thank God, yes. Part 4. Treasure. $21 million in silver and gold is missing, and treasure hunters keep trying to find that shit and do that thing that Scrooge McDuck does whenever he dives into the gold coins, like it's water, but they probably figure out before then that coins are really hard and very cold and that wouldn't be as fun in real life. Personally, I've always wanted to do that thing with like fresh McDonald's french fries, but that was pretty hot. But The Bad 1800s Accent Troop presents Unsolved Mysteries Masterpiece Theater. I have deposited in the county of Bedford 5,100 pounds of silver and 2,921 pounds of gold. 1821! Oh, wait. Uh, is this the dollop podcast? 
No, because that's a show that people actually listen to and enjoy. Bedford County, Virginia. Thomas J. Beale wrote about a huge hoard of treasure he'd buried in the hills of Virginia. Approximately $21 million worth of precious metals valued at the time, where Michael Jackson was still cool and there was like only one Predator movie. <laughs> Would-be 21 millionaires comb the area for a hundred years trying to find the treasure. Beale and a team of miners dug up the metals in New Mexico and supposedly moved the treasure to Virginia. He returned to New Mexico and completely disappeared. He left behind several clues to find the treasure and someone used the Declaration of Independence as a cipher to decrypt a message that Robert Stack doesn't fucking have time for. pounds of silver and 2,900... then describes the treasure in detail. Securely packed. Unsolved Mysteries joins several red uh, treasure hunters to search for the silver and gold. Whoever decodes it may find Beale's fortune, stored in a secret vault roughly the size of two Rolls Royces. Okay, that's weird, because there's a bunch of those cars. <laughs> it's approximately the size of two Rolls Royces. That's such a weird measurement. They claim to have totally broken the cipher and know where to dig. Let's look. Thomas Beale left the clues, which one by one will lead to his fortune. Okay, but how many Rolls Royces is this fortune? They claim to have found artifacts at each point they investigated using left-behind clues. They use gigantic 1980s technology to search the area. Radical. The brothers find a rod in the ground that was a carriage rod thing, and they believe this thing is pointing in the direction of the treasure, even though it sort of looks like a piece of trash and they didn't really take note of where it was pointing. Another fucker believes that he found the treasure and uses his personal computer to determine the secrets of the codes. Looking at specific rocks. And uh, it told me about a, a specific type of rock that I was looking for. And I happened to locate that specific type of rock. And there it is right there. It has a face on it. And it has a head on it. This is, is what the, the deciphered code told me to look for. And then I said, okay, the treasure has to be underneath it because it said that's where it was supposed to be. They rent giant construction equipment to look. The operator guy sounds tired of this shit and I love it. He's dug for this shit 22 times and openly mocks every single treasure hunter he comes in contact with. And uh, when you start digging, Paul, it was always just two feet away from it. I don't care how deep in the ground you went, and still it was two feet deeper than what you uh, dug. Finally, someone in the story I can fully support. Local pipe smokers come together, that's not a euphemism, to discuss the treasure uh, and if it could exist, but they all laugh at the idea that randos will crack a possibly fake code to dig up a possibly hoax treasure. Jesus Christ, it looks like I'm back home in Indiana with all these, like, high-cap-wearing yahoos sitting in a fucking barn. My aim was to find out whether the ciphers are real or whether they're a hoax. Hans Gruber's cousin discusses that the numbers on the code are not random, and therefore, somehow, that means there's treasure in there. Well, uh, he who laughs last, laughs best. Is that the and saying? I, I believe that one of these days I might get the last laugh. All right, man. He who laughs last, laughs best. 
says the guy whose wife is in another state and lost his job or something and lives in a motel. Am I getting too shitty about this? The original yahoos from the start of the story run out of money, give up, and go home. After finding four, there's something bad wrong. There's something bad wrong. They've done this before. They, much like stupid birds, are expected to return again in a different season. Jesus Christ, find any other hobby. There is no update to this story because the treasure probably doesn't fucking exist. Look, I'm an idiot and maybe an asshole for making a comedy-ish podcast about murder, but don't dedicate your life to fucking digging holes in Virginia to find gold. Go down that ladder, you son of a bitch! Updates and background info on this story. It's 2018, and the men in the video were determined to spend all their time and resources on finding this treasure. They dedicated their lives to it. Can you guess which one of them eventually found it? You guessed it. Fucking no one ever found it. What is the point of hiding treasure and then leaving clues? I don't un fucking understand any of this shit. The Beale Ciphers is a pretty popular urban myth that are, are a popular myth? Do they count as one item or is each cipher considered a separate, Never mind. There are lots of articles online about this story. It's mentioned in several books and TV shows and there are actually entire books written about just the ciphers themselves and determining their validity and possibly solving them. But nobody has yet proven they are not a hoax. That's a, that's a sentence that makes sense, right? If you're the type of person that likes to hope against all hope and truly believe stories like this, it's probably time for you to skip towards the end. I'm special! So let's review the story first. This might get boring. 1817. Thomas Jefferson Beale from Virginia and 30 of his besties are out hunting buffalo and grizzly bears, probably saying things like, I'm certain we'll never run out of any of these while reloading their rifles sitting on the chairs made of buffalo skulls. Somehow or another, about the same time when uh, Thomas was giving his rendition of the bear necessities while wearing the skin of his most recent bear murder victim, they stumbled upon a, a huge amount of gold and silver. This was before the California gold rush, so just how many people had long wispy mustaches and handkerchief bindles they carried over their shoulder is uncertain possibly 30%. All the men agreed to share the treasure, and they set upon a cartoonishly complicated plan, possibly featuring Nicolas Cage, to hide the treasure in Virginia, even though they were currently near Santa Fe, New Mexico. Two giant wagons, or I guess it would have been like two sets of wagons? That shit weighed a lot. Set out for Virginia to be buried underground in a rock-lined vault. Or none of that happened. So, one man was selected amongst them supposedly of high moral character, and it was his duty to ensure that the treasure was cared for and properly distributed in case something bad happened, like catching dysentery. Robert Morris was that man, and he was given a locked box by Beale with instructions not to open it for 10 years in case none of the men returned because of something like dysentery. Inside the box, of course, are three ciphers. One cipher contained information on where the treasure was. One told us what the treasure was in detail. And one told us who the rightful owners and their families were. Why you would keep the last one, the heirs and owners, a secret is a bit strange, but okay. 
you'd think the last thing you'd want to be a secret is who the hell is supposed to own the treasure you found, especially when you already told us what the treasure was and where it was, but maybe they weren't thinking clearly because of all the dysentery. Anyway, none of this probably happened. That boy, Morris, ended up waiting 23 years for some reason until he opened the lockbox and never figured out the ciphers. Apparently the key to the ciphers was supposed to come in the mail or something, but it never did. Much like my Red Ranger Power Ranger outfit that I ordered out of a catalog in 1994, it was supposed to be Morphin time, but I guess sometimes life gives you lemons and doesn't give you your fucking Red Ranger costume even though you were a good boy that year. Anyway, the story goes, before he dies, Morris gives the ciphers and relays all of his correspondences to the Jessica Beale to this guy named James B. Ward. Now, Jimmy B.W. somehow, quote, accidentally, translates the middle cipher, detailing all the sparkly shit, but can't decipher the other ciphers. Hmm. He's like writing this pamphlet in 1885 and all like, hey everybody, I got all this shit and shit and I don't know shit about this shit, so all you can see this shit right now, shit. So he releases the papers to the public, the ciphers, all the information, because he doesn't want the mystery to be forgotten or whatever. So like there's these guys that are brothers and brothers that are guys named the Hart brothers that try to talk to Ward before he dies to get information on the treasure so it's not lost forever. They eventually settle upon the very scientific and well thought out idea of hiring a medium to contact Beale in the afterlife to get tips where to go. It worked out great for the medium. The brothers didn't get shit. Later on, up to now, it would be one of the longest and most expensivest searches for treasure in U.S. history. Everyone from people using dowsing rods to computer decryption have tried to solve the mystery. The, the first and last ciphers especially, but nobody has, be, because it's probably um, fake as shit. And once again, I find a piece written by my hero, Joe Nickel, that discusses the fake as shit angle of the story. Why do I think it's all fake as shit? Well, okay, nobody has ever proven Thomas J. Beale existed. It's not like he had a Facebook account and he used to share memes that are kind of racist, like your terrible racist parents. All we have to go on is census data from the early 1800s, which is hugely unreliable for many, many reasons I won't really go into detail about. Uh, probably dysentery has something to do with it somehow. Is the, is the reoccurring Oregon Trail joke getting tired yet? I think so. So anyway, there's no evidence Thomas J. Beale uh, was a real person. Okay, so remember way back when, when I was talking about that star witness to the first story, The Tempest Trial, uh, in 1992? The guy who said Tempest confessed to the murders a bunch of times on his farm, but then remembered it was maybe like two times, and he didn't actually own the farm yet, so he couldn't have done it then. Remember that? Good, good for you. You're, you're great. Ward, supposedly, wrote down the entire detailed story Morris told him, and this was initially regarded as proof the story was real. Morris was a hotel owner, and this is how he claims to have met Beale. He says he met him over a period of two winters, between 1820 and 1822. He mentions the date 1822 multiple times. 
May of 1822 is when Beale left the inn for the last time. The problem with this account is Morris made the public declarations in the paper regarding open rooms, and when you look at these and the inn's records, which are public, you'll find out that he did not own or operate the inn at this time in which he claims these meetings occurred. He got the inn in 1823, a full year later after he claims Beale left for the last time. So, lots of supposed details, the intricacy of which is what convinced maybe, you know, the story was real. It's like a common thing when people make a good hoax, they add a bunch of fake details. Uh, none of those panned out. Maybe he somehow forgot that he bought a fucking inn and then used the wrong date a bunch of times. But regardless, that at the very least makes him an unreliable witness. Nickel also goes into many other directions that seem to poke lots of tiny holes in the story. If you'll allow me to continue, this gets a little weird. There is an odd similarity to the story of another myth, an older myth, of the Swift Silver Mines. The Swift Silver Mines was a legend from Kentucky with almost the exact same beats and exact same problems. A guy, Swift, discovered loads of treasure. Instead of taking it and spending it on making a giant silver dick statue like you know you would, he hides the treasure in a hole, makes a map, makes a cipher for the map. Nobody can solve it. Nobody can prove that this guy Swift ever existed, and just one guy ever talked to this guy and absolutely no proof about anything exists. Lots of people think that the Swift Journal is just an art project. Before you scoff at that, people did actually do things like this a lot. Lots of writings, especially college writings, ended up being real legends. That when you trace them back, it's just someone being creative and having a bit of fun. I forget the damn details, but this happened recently. Do you remember a few years ago there was a modern myth of the Asherian stairwell at a university that never ended. Like, you walk up the steps and somehow you're at the bottom of the steps again. That was a really cool video art project with lots of fake photos and fake testimonials and all that stuff added on top to the of the video project and, and it really fooled some people when in reality it was a, a super slick and very well made goof referencing the artist MC Escher. The deal here, that's interesting, is that there are Freemason references in the Swift journals that made Nickel and others think it's simply a modern take on a Masonic legend of the underground lost secrets thing. Swift marks a tree with the symbol of a compass, a square, and a trowel to mark his way, which are all the three most common and most well-known Masonic symbols. There are line-for-line -line copies of phrases and symbolic imagery from the Masonic glossaries in the Beale tale as well, which led some to believe that Beale was simply a Mason implementing Masonic style into his writings. Or perhaps Beale was writing an allegory for the Masonic legend, the same as Swift, a cipher inside the story itself. Since Masons are forbidden to tell Masonic legends to non-Masons, Telling the story by cloaking it in a legend in a modern tale and changing details would make sense. But what is possible, the most likely take, is that Beale never existed. And someone involved with crafting the details of the story 
was a Freemason. But of course, that train of thought doesn't go anywhere. Oh wait, James B. Ward, the guy that released all the papers, was a Freemason. The train choo-choos to Truth Town. Consider the fact, words and word usage published in the letters Ward published were not in common use in English writing until many, many years later. By the way, one of them was Stampede. Isn't that weird that people didn't use that until like the 1830s or some shit? Consider that James Ward was a Freemason and only one of two people connected to the story that have an actual record of existing. Consider that he not Morris, published the ciphers and the letters, consider the timelines don't make sense. Consider a novice, an admitted novice, with no idea how to crack a difficult cipher, randomly decides to somehow, through methods he himself is foggy about, use the Declaration of Independence as a key to unlock the only cipher that would entice people. Why would you waste your time doing this shit, you fucking idiot? And finally, consider. Nobody's fucking found any of this shit. Or maybe they actually did. I don't know. What, would you tell anyone if you found 50 fucking million dollars of rare metals? Nope. You'd be well on your way to making your giant dick statue you're so obsessed with. Okay, so... Alright. Get out your phone. Look at it. When I was a child... The most advanced piece of handheld technology that I knew of was a Sega Game Gear. You can type that into your phone if you don't know what that is. Modern computers cannot find any key that unlocks the cipher that doesn't just spit out a bunch of bullshit letters that don't make any words in any language. The only cipher that can be decoded is the one that talks about all the shit you can find if you decode the other two, which is suspicious because it's the only one that would make this interesting or enticing in any way. If you decrypt the other two, just a bunch of names, I mean, come on. It has every single common aspect of a good hoax. I know it's not a hoax. You know, I'm convinced that it's not. It's been there 160 some years, supposedly, and it's gonna be there uh, until it's found. People used to make up hoaxes all the time in the 1800s because it was the only way to troll people and make a buck or whatever. Back then, people didn't have fortune, it didn't exist yet, and there was no way to make image macros to elect a human pubic wig president. They had to rely on making people think they'd be rich or live forever or whatever thing people wanted in the 1800s. Whatever they dreamed of, uh, to try to make their lives less shit-covered. Like having enough money to go to the dentist so you don't die of gum disease. You thought I was gonna say having the cure for dysentery. Oh shit, I just did. Result unsolved. If your argument is, prove to me the thing I just made up doesn't exist, then you're an asshole. Don't waste your life looking for treasure. Play with your fucking children or something goddamn. Even though he has lost his job, now living in a nearby motel room, Wilbur Swift depressing. is still digging at the bottom of his 25-foot shack. That's extra depressing. So far, he's found nothing. Yeah, that's more depressing. The Tony brothers believe they will have the last laugh. They still haven't found the treasure. While we were filming, they had to return home after running out of money. But they will be back. <sighs> oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. 
It's outro time already. See, that wasn't so bad, was it? I hope the extra verbosity of this episode made up for how insanely late it was, but maybe nobody is listening and it doesn't matter. That's probably... Yeah. If you'd like to know more about Story 1, the one where I made almost no jokes, the Raymond Beaver Tempest case, you can look up a lot of things. There are tons of articles about the case online, and you can read the Supreme Court case on caselaw.findlaw.com, where the Rhode Island Supreme Court upheld his conviction in 1995, uh, and has a bunch of details about the case, it granted release of evidence post-conviction, and uh, eventually ruled to convict with his Alfred plea. You can read that whole thing there. You can check out another podcast I actually haven't listened to yet, so maybe this is a weird thing to recommend. Uh, but it has great reviews, and he posted his notes, which I looked at for a second and looked away. It's uh, it's called The Trail Went Cold, or it's just called Trail Went Cold. It's about unresolved, unsolved mystery stuff. I was going to check it out. I was all excited. I was like, holy shit. But then I was like, oh, I don't want to listen to another guy's podcast and then do a podcast about that guy's podcast. That, that would be kind of lame. Uh, he seems to have a lot more information and goes way more into depth about the case than I did, including a lot of the rumors around it. Because I try to fit four stories into about an hour I've gone over now. But, uh, you know, um, uh, <sighs> this laziness. Oh, one more thing. There's an episode about this case on an old Discovery Channel show uh, that I forgot about called Guilty or Innocent. But I can't find the show or the episode to stream or rent or buy anywhere online. So maybe look out for that. If you'd like to know more about the other stories, the Yount murder case is pretty well covered by this point, and I hate it, and I'm tired of it, and I can't find much else about Carlucci myself, even though I think that's kind of a fascinating story. But there's tons of insane conspiracy theory, Alex Jonesy insanity online about the Beale treasure, obviously. If you really want to do that to yourself, go ahead. Personally, I'm out. And now, thank yous. Thank you for waiting, if you were waiting, for this third episode. It takes me a long time to make these things, and when people leave comments about them, it makes me feel nice inside my heart place. When people give me thumbs down, I just assume they're assholes. That's not narcissistic, is it? Thank you for listening to the Solved Unsolved Mysteries podcast. I plan on making more of these things, so please subscribe to wherever you're listening to it. I think I'm going to leave them up on YouTube, like, just forever. So if you're listening to this on a feed of some kind somewhere else, you can still find it there and possibly download it from there with some kind of software that you're probably not supposed to use, but I won't tell anyone. Thank you for subscribing. I'm also uploading uh, travel videos and other crap to the YouTube channel, Destructor Blog, if you want to look at those things with your eyes. Oh, I mentioned last time on the last podcast uh, that my four-year-long project Mecha Review was almost finished. And guess what? I ran into more problems with it. <laughs> Hooray! But that has nothing to do uh, with this podcast, really, which is about unsolved mysteries and hoaxes and murder uh, people. Not nerdy robot things. That's what that one's about. I like to work on uh, very different projects because I get bored easily and I have horrifyingly bad anxiety and it helps to be able to temporarily abandon things uh, when I feel like I can't do it. That may have been an overshare. Anyway, bye. Have a, have a good one.
If you or someone you know has any information on the cases you have heard in this broadcast, please leave a comment below. Perhaps you can be the key to solving a mystery. Or someone will just say something really mean to you for no reason because all comment sections are like, hate volcanoes spewing hot poison on everything. Fucking chill out. Footage and audio from the television show and Solve Mysteries is used under fair use. This show is not affiliated with the television show and the footage and audio is used under a fair use without permission. Please support the Unsolved Mysteries by watching it from official licensed sources such as Hulu or Amazon Prime. Unsolved Mysteries is by NBC, CBS, Spike, Lifetime, and currently distributed by Film Rise. We miss you Robert Stack and Dennis Farina. Music by 3Chain linked from the album Phantoms used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Please see companion text for full license and link. Please visit 3Chain links on SoundCloud. If this is 3Chain links, please answer my fan mail. Goodbye.